This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America, the smart choice for ID implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant 18013-5, and surpasses AMVA guidelines. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AmbaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Amba community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the AmbaCast. Uh, this week, we are taking a look at motorcycle safety, and that is particularly because the month of May is Motorcycle Safety Awareness Month. And so to talk to me about motorcycle safety and what's being done to prepare riders and to prepare non-motorcycle riders to share the road. I'm pleased to welcome Sunshine Beer. Sunshine is the director of the Idaho Star Motorcycle Safety Program. Sunshine, thanks for joining us on the Envicast. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure. So I mentioned that May is particularly Motorcycle Awareness, uh, Safety Awareness Month. Um, And I guess my first question for folks that maybe don't realize it, there's a reason May is chosen. It's kind of in in most places. I know you're in Idaho, so it could still be winter there for all, all the rest of us know. But let's say in most places, May is a transitional month weather-wise, road condition-wise. And it's where you start to see some of the weather change, which both makes the riding conditions different, but it's also where then some of the motorcycles start to come out more, right? Is that, is that a fair assessment as to one of the reasons maybe that May is a good opportunity to remind ourselves of this? That is a fair assessment. Yes. So we start to see a lot more motorcycles on the road in May. Yeah. And I guess, but in your work, uh, in terms of motorcycle preparedness, uh, you're dealing mostly with new motorcycle riders. In our program, our, so to speak, bread and butter is basic rider training. In our uh, curriculum suite, we do have courses for advanced riders. So we see the full spectrum. Um, That's not always the case in every state, Um, Mm -hmm. but mostly we do focus on beginning riders. And so let's, for those of us like myself who do not do not ride, um, you know, I think there's probably some general assumptions we make about motorcycle skills, motorcycle riding skills. Um, But what do you think maybe some of the misconceptions or the underestimated part of being able to be a safe and prepared motorcycle operator? Okay, great question. Um, So I think a lot of folks are under the impression that, you know, it's, it's just another machine. It's just another thing to learn. And it's a quick thing, jump on, here's Mm -hmm. the throttle, here's the clutch, get ready and go. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are a lot of nuances involved in safe handling of a motorcycle, just like any other heavy equipment. You don't jump on a forklift and learn how to drive it in two seconds. Uh, Same thing with motorcycles. So we really advocate for safety training and proper application of techniques, um, which, as I said, um, a lot of people think that, oh, I can just have my neighbor teach me. And and yeah, that's absolutely true. You can learn from a friend, a neighbor, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth, but they might have bad habits and unsafe habits that they're passing on. And so safety training in a controlled environment, we think is critical for the development of that rider. Mm -hmm. And how have you over over the years, how have you been able to develop uh, and evolve the training and training curriculum to better match what we've seen on the roadways in terms of 
skills or mistakes by riders that are actually causing crashes and in the most unfortunate cases causing fatalities how has the training evolved to match actually preventing those crashes happening sure um so i have a couple of perspectives on that one um is my my position as the director in the idaho star program i can tell you about what we do locally and here in the state of idaho to address those issues and then i also have a perspective of what's going on nationally because i am involved in national organizations um, and working groups with NHTSA and the um, smsa so in idaho what we do we look closely at the statistics so each year we compile statistics on all of the fatal and serious injury crashes. And we determine um, as close as we can what rider errors there may be or what contributing factors there were to the crash. And in most cases, over 75% are some kind of rider error. Okay? So mm -hmm. over 40% of our fatal crashes in Idaho are riders running out of corners. Um, they call that the technical term they call that is failure to no negotiate a turn yes. so in in that respect we have incorporated a lot more training in cornering in our curriculum materials as we see that's where the crashes are happening so that's what we want to address as a priority so that's what we do here in idaho we have the advantage of being able to customize and modify our curriculum for what our riders need here in our state which may be very different, say, for example, the state of Florida, they don't have the same um, consistencies with the types of crashes that we do. So they might need to take a different approach hmm. in a different state. Um, it may be age demographic, it may be style of riding, and it may be the type of motorcycles that are involved in other crashes. So there is a a national curriculum provider, so Motorcycle Safety Foundation, most folks have taken, if they have taken a course, have probably taken an MSF course. Mm -hmm. So I know that over the years, the MSF has very diligently um, and actively upgraded and improved their curriculum suite as well to address not only basic operation, but to help influence and shape human behaviors. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we it's not that we don't know how to respond or we don't know how to control a motorcycle, we make the wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we make unsafe decisions. So what we really try to get at is the root of that, which is the choice and judgment of the riders. So we try to influence them to make wise informed choices and understand the consequences of those choices to influence to safer behaviors when writing mm. hope that makes sense it, it, it does absolutely and i guess so the the next piece you talk about you know the cornering in idaho which has been a trend and there may be trends different trends in other places you reference you've been working with nitsa on some of these activities you're a, a past chair of the national association of state motorcycle state administrators uh, smsa that you referred to how does your experience in Idaho compare to what you're seeing in national trends as it relates to motorcycle crash causation? I think everybody is on the same trajectory in wherever they are in relationship to being a motorcycle safety stakeholder. We all want the same goal at the end, and that's to get every rider home at the end of every ride. Mm -hmm. um, everybody knows that there's somebody counting on that person 
to come home safely from that ride. So I don't really think there's a whole lot of difference in what we're getting at and what our goals are and how we are addressing the countermeasures for motorcycle safety. We have a little bit, there may be some variations in methodology or philosophy on how we get from point A to point B in our instruction, but fundamentally we are all reaching for the same goal. Okay. And uh, in terms of work working nationally, uh, have you been able to look at in terms of the skills that might be causing a crash or those mistakes that are causing, whether it's cornering or infrastructure challenges? You know, we talk about there are different places in the country where the infrastructure might be more friendly to a motorcycle rider than others. Um, have you looked at any of that that space with the infrastructure? In some areas, yes, and some uh, states are more active in yeah. um, getting involved with the motorcyclists, getting involved in the infrastructure to make motorcycling safer. No, there's, and we have made a lot of improvements um, throughout the years in a lot of areas, increasing um, signage, uh, for example, flashing chevrons, um, indicating a sharp turn ahead or sharp curve. Um, those efforts uh, are, a lot of times led by motorcycle riders and advocates that are participatory in say for example their governor of highway safety association mm. or their strategic safety plan with the office of highway safety in each state so it kind of varies um, by state to state with those relationships on a bigger picture um, those are things that NHTSA is directly involved in and uh, as smsa as well yeah now, what about the interaction between the motorcycle and the other vehicles on the roadway? I know there's been some focus over the past few years to prepare a non-motorcycle rider operating a passenger vehicle to, quote unquote, share the road, right? That's a big campaign that's that's talked about a lot. Um, I'll give my own example of I only learned in the past few years this idea that when there's a motorcycle behind you, you might see them changing lanes more frequently. And that's not because they're trying to be aggressive or annoy you in the rear view mirror, but you're training those motorcycle riders that when you're behind, when they're behind a vehicle, change lanes maybe a little more regularly to remind the car in front of you that you're there and that you're not getting lost in their, in their blind spot. Um, that was something as a, as a car operator, I wasn't aware of. I just thought, why does this jerk keep changing lanes behind me? <laughs> But right. what, what are the other examples that maybe we don't realize that either it's a motorcycle skill to interact with the vehicle or something that maybe as a car operator, I would want to know um, to be sensitive to what the motorcycle operator is dealing with? Yeah, thank you for asking that question as a motor vehicle operator. Um, the changing like sorry i don't mean to correct but i just want to clarify not necessarily changing lanes but position in the lane absolutely so <laughs> you're more than happy to correct me because you are 100 correct they are not weaving in between the lines that's exactly right right we call that dynamic lane positioning to yeah. position yourself best to see and be seen as far as other strategies that motorists can use um it's become very kind of cliche but an overused term but look twice save a life mm -hmm. um that is a a, a NHTSA campaign as well and a lot of states are using that but look twice save a life and what it really means is that we have a tendency towards inattentional blindness. So when we're not actually actively looking for something, 
we don't tend to see something that sure. may be right in front of us. So the motorcycle may be right there, but we're not looking for motorcycles specifically. So they disappear from our field of vision. And that's called inattentional blindness. So that's another just simple reminder is, like I said, it, it's become a little cliche, but do yeah. look twice. There's, there's no really simpler way to say that. Other things that might be different with motorcycle handling, um, very powerful um, engine braking. So rapid deceleration when you roll off the throttle. So not all motorcyclists brake when they are decelerating, they use a lot of engine braking. So mm. they might be decelerating at a much faster pace than the motorist is aware of or anticipating because they don't see the brake lights. Mm. So just watch those close rates on a motorcycle that may be ahead of you to, um, if they're adjusting that speed using engine braking. Gotcha, gotcha. And so it's funny, you mentioned the, the engine and the motorcycle itself, which leads me to something that I've also found interesting. Um, an underappreciation of not all motorcycles are created equal. And a rider who might be trained to ride one type of motorcycle may not be prepared to operate a different type of motorcycle. You are absolutely correct. Yes. And we, we do see this in, in one demographic specifically where, um, you know, somebody might have had a motorcycle when they were you know, say in their 20s and, you know, mm -hmm. younger enthusiast and they had a different type of motorcycle and a different style of riding, took a long hiatus from riding, maybe raised a family, had a career, and now they're a point in their life where they're like, hey, you know, that was pretty fun back then. I think mm -hmm. I'd like to get involved in that now that I have a little bit more, you know, discretionary time. And then they go out and buy a modern motorcycle that has a much higher displacement, bigger engine, a lot more mm -hmm. torque, a lot more power than anything they've ever ridden before and may be in a little bit over their head on that mm -hmm. machine, regardless of what style it is. But yes, there are different styles of motorcycles that have very different handling characteristics. Yeah. And the, the a big part of that is, is the, the engine power, right? The CCs, I guess, as it's referred to in the motorcycle world. Yes, so there are some very powerful, high displacement, very um, fast motorcycles. However, um, the motorcyclist has the responsibility to use that throttle appropriately in the appropriate conditions. Mm -hmm. So we don't advocate for using that power of acceleration on the street. There's a place for that, and it's called the racetrack. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I mean, is that a challenge? I mean, we see that with vehicles as well, right? We, there are vehicles that are manufactured and available and purchased and driven that clearly are designed to do things that there is neither the infrastructure nor the legal construct to do on our on our roadways, right? You can buy a vehicle that can travel at 140, 160 miles per hour. And even with raising speed limits in parts of the country, there's still nowhere that's got a speed limit that high. So why would somebody need a vehicle that goes that fast? And we know that in the highway safety world right now, street racing is becoming an increasing challenge. I'd imagine in the, the microscopic world sense or in the specific sense of motorcycles, it's the exact same thing. Motorcycles that are designed and can do things that there's no road that they should be doing them on. And then I'd have to ask if street racing is as much of a challenge in the motorcycle world right now. 
Another great question. Um, I personally am not aware of a growing trend with street racing with motorcycles. I have heard That's of good. the the automobiles, yeah. um, but I don't know specifically if that is a, a problem per se with um, among motorcyclists. I would anticipate if those same people are racing automobiles and they happen to be motorcyclists, they're probably doing the same thing on their motorcycles yeah, as well. For sure. For sure. Now, a lot of what uh, I think helps prepare a motorcycle operator for if they were to be in a, in a crash to mitigate the impact, of course, is the protective gear. Mm -hmm. So for folks that maybe aren't as familiar again with the motorcycle world, I think this is a good opportunity to educate our non-motorcycle rider listeners. Talk to me about in the training world and preparing that new rider, how you make sure they're aware for the right protective gear and how to best suit up. My approach to that is choices and consequences. I think I mentioned that a little bit earlier. Um, so we're trying to affect human behavior rather than finger wagging and saying, you should always wear a helmet. You should always wear this. You should always have a jacket with armor. And if you don't, you're a bad rider and you're making bad decisions. Um, what we try to educate people with is there are a lot of choices when it comes to riding gear and personal protective equipment, such as different helmet styles, types, you know, half helmets, full face helmets, modular helmets, and you know, riding jackets and different types of materials, cordura mm -hmm. nylon, leather, denim, so on and so forth. What we feel is important is to educate our riders or to be riders about the differences in those different quality um, components so that they understand and can make informed choices about what's right for them and also understanding what they might be compromising when they make certain choices over others. Okay. And so uh, let me ask you a little bit about your writing background. You're, I mean, you're not only a trainer, you're a writer, I would, uh, I would assume. When did you start uh, your, your journey on a motorcycle? Oh my goodness. Um, I've lost count of the years. <laughs> I started when I was three and that was, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I started riding in my early twenties. So I've been riding about a quarter of a century and uh, started out as a family um, event. So my mom and my dad um, rode motorcycles and my mom rode on the back with my, actually my stepdad. And then she decided, hey, I want my own motorcycle. I'm going to do this. My mom was a very um, forward thinking, very independent woman and such taught me to be. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I want my own bike. So when my mom got her own motorcycle that opened up the back seat or passenger seat for um, on my stepdad's bike. So that's how I started riding was as a passenger. Yeah. And then I kind of went the same path as my mom's. I, I don't want to ride on the back. I want to ride my own. Uh, so fortunately, I was given the opportunity to do that. And then over the years have grown um, in my experience with different styles and types of motorcycles. Um, so I've done all types of ride. I had cruisers, you know, from Harleys and then sport touring motorcycles, adventure touring, sport bikes. Um, I think as long as they have two or three wheels, I'm a, also a big three wheel advocate. Oh, okay. You know, like Pan Am Spiders and Rikers and Harley Davidson Triglides and those sort of things. Those are also super fun and should not be um, discluded from the motorcycle category as um, by definition, those are also motorcycles. So whether it's two wheels, three wheels, if it gets you out enjoying the elements, that's what um, mm -hmm. I'm all about. 
and the fun factor as long as we're safely having fun yeah so let, let me ask you about the three-wheelers since you, you brought it up. In this case, you're talking specifically about three-wheelers where you are still generally straddling it the way you would a motorcycle and it's open as, a, as opposed to some of the three-wheel vehicles we see where there is more of a enclosure and you, you sit inside of it in a, in a seat. Correct. Yes. So um, like I said, by definition with NHTSA, it is um, it has a seat that you straddle with a handlebar control. Right. So anything with automotive controls like a steering wheel, roll cage, enclosed compartment, things like that, that is a different class and has a different classification. So, yes, I, I mean, like that yeah. specifically, like I said, the Can-Am Rikers right. and Spiders and the trikes, um, you know, Harley and Goldwing, you know, make the trikes. You know. And in terms of in terms of training and preparation for those, do they do they handle differently? Do they react to the road differently? Does it bring in a different skill set than the traditional two wheel bicycle, motorcycle? I, so I don't know why I said bicycle, but <laughs> you knew where I was going there. Yeah, no problem. Um, I am really glad you asked. I'm actually um, in the middle of a training course to um, my third three-wheel curriculum certification. So I'm already certified in two other three-wheel curriculums. This will be my third. Um, as such, I obviously believe it's a very important part of training as well. If I'm going to, or, you know, that extra mile to get that um, additional certification, um, I do strongly advocate for training um, on the three wheels. They are significantly different in handling characteristics and the dynamics of turning, steering um, is a lot different. So I think uh, training for that is important. Even if you have two wheel experience, mm -hmm. what we say is when you get on a three wheel machine, for the first time, you are a novice, regardless if you have two-wheel experience or not. Mm -hmm. um, what we are seeing is a growing demographic of people moving to three-wheel vehicles that have never ridden anything else. So it oh. used to be that it was a transition two wheels to three wheels. Now it's becoming more and more popular for people to go straight to three-wheel. And then, so again, the importance of that yeah. education from the beginning on learn how to properly handle that um, three-wheel vehicle. Because yeah. I, don't, I don't know whether it's a perception or truth uh, for someone who is not operated either. Uh, if I would imagine for uh, many of us that have not operated either, there is a sense of perception that the three-wheel, maybe it's a little less risky. You've got a little bit more stability. You're not, you're not leaning into turns physically because you're actually turning the vehicle as opposed to having to balance in the the cornering case that we started the conversation with right and so yes. it's a little bit of maybe a, a lower risk proposition for some of us who are you know more risk averse <laughs> absolutely and i think that's why we are seeing a lot of folks that are going straight to three wheel and bypassing the two wheels altogether because they are inherently more stable mm -hmm. and more stability uh, reduces the risk factor. There will always be a risk factor involved because you're vulnerable and you don't have the roll cage and the protection mm -hmm. around you. The only protection you have is the protective gear that you're wearing. So I always have a saying that the asphalt doesn't care what you fell off of, mm -hmm. whether it has two wheels, three wheels, goes 20 miles an hour or hundred miles an hour. The asphalt doesn't care. It doesn't have feelings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's going to tear you apart the same way. Um, so yes, but the three wheelers tend to do be a little bit more um, stability 
and accessible for people that may have balance issues on on two yeah. wheels. Yeah. And so I want to go back to one thing you said earlier, and then I'll I'll let you go to get back to that training course that that you're doing. Um, but you we've talked a lot about the the novice rider, the introductory training. But you mentioned earlier on that there is advanced training that you know you might be out there and riding for a while but then there is a way to further your develop the skills which on one sense makes perfect sense any training you could always train more um on another hand it would fascinate me to think about okay well what are some safety skills that are nice to have if you have time for it as advanced training that isn't required to beginner so tell me more about the definition between that beginner versus more advanced training Great. Um, so you did hit on the concept of why we have the advanced training is the lifelong learning. So when we get into a basic course, we are giving people the I've, I've heard it this week from other I'm, I'm in a room full of experts. So it's been a great experience. Um, but somebody said we're giving them a license to start learning. It's, so when when we give the basic instructions, mm -hmm. so we see a lot in our industry of a one and done mentality. Oh, I took my basic course. I got my license. I'm done. Yeah. Um, as a very experienced writer with, like I said, about a quarter century of experience under my belt, I am never done learning. And that's one of the intrigues of motorcycling to me is that I can always level up. I can always be better. So when we get into more advanced training, we do higher speed um, avoidance maneuvers. So say for example, higher speed braking. So in our basic class, we're doing, you know, parking lot speeds. We're not getting to real mm -hmm, street mm -hmm. speeds that people are going to be going. Like typically people don't ride out on the street at 20 and 25 miles per hour on a regular basis. However, we do ride at 35, 45 miles per hour on a regular basis. So we practice braking and emergency braking from those higher speeds. Same thing with swerving um, and cornering. We do um, exercise where we call it break and evade. Well, you'll do a very quick break to scrub off speed and then swerve as if a lane is blocked or somebody's cutting your path of travel. So I would say the biggest difference is higher speeds and more technical execution of mm. those basic skills. The basic skills are still the fundamental skills you need, no matter how advanced of a rider you are. It's the nuances and the technicalities and the, the um, place of those skills. Well, Sunshine, I appreciate you uh, chatting with me today. You know, as we said, May's Motorcycle Safety Awareness Month. So it's a good excuse to chat with an expert in the field like yourself and remind ourselves of basics and open our eyes and ears to new things about sharing the road with motorcycles or maybe some motorcycle riders listening that maybe had that beginner course years ago and hadn't thought about going back and refining their skills and continue that lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for having me today. It was an honor to be here and an honor to be considered an expert in my field. So I appreciate that. And great questions. It was a fantastic conversation. Thank Excellent. you so much. Thank you, Sunshine. Thank you all for listening this week. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Till next week, everyone, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.